Hello and welcome to episode 36 of The Thing About Golf, a podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that explores the fundamental question of why people are so drawn to this infuriating game. My name's Rod Murray, and alongside John Huggan, we take turns at putting this apparently simple, though oddly vexing question, to a range of people in the golf space, from players and administrators to writers and entrepreneurs and every type of golf nut in between. If you haven't yet done so, I urge you not to miss Huggy's interview with Dame Laura Davies in episode 35. And indeed, I urge you never to miss any of our episodes simply by subscribing to the show. It costs nothing and guarantees every episode is delivered to you as soon as it's released, meaning you never have to go searching or worry that you might have missed something. It's easy to do through Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone or iPad user, or through Google Podcasts if you're on an Android system. And for those who already have Spotify on their device, you can also find us there. If you're having any trouble figuring out how to subscribe, just send a message via email or through the Twitter or Facebook pages, and I'll personally help to guide you through it. Enough of the admin, let's get on with today's episode. And today's guest is one I've wanted to interview right from the very first time we had the idea for this podcast. Matthew Goggin has seen and done pretty much everything in a 25-year career that includes an Australian amateur title and eight professional tournament victories across Europe, Australia and the US. A fabulous striker of the ball with a naturally aggressive mindset and a flair for the dramatic, Goggin was and is an enormously entertaining player to watch. But golf talent aside, Goggin is also one of those pros whose interests extend beyond the bubble of just golf. With a naturally curious mind and intelligence to match, you'll hear in our chat Goggin reference several influences outside the game. And just a heads up before we get into it, to clarify a couple of people you'll hear mentioned in the interview, Matt's niece is Hallie Mayburn, who was leading the Australian Amateur the day we spoke and went on to finish a more than creditable fourth behind Grace Kim. Hallie Mayburn is a name you might want to remember. And Matt's coach was Ross Herbert, one of Australian golf's most popular figures and most respected coaches who tragically died from cancer in the year 2000 at the age of just 41. And one final note. You'll find in the show notes a link to a piece Matt wrote about his grandfather the day after we spoke. It's heartfelt, it's beautifully written, and it explains much of Matt's thinking in developing the Seven Mile Beach project. It's well worth your time to read if you have some, as I think it also goes some way to answering our opening question, what is the thing about golf for Matt Goggin? Um, it's supposed to be hard. <laughs> it's supposed to be difficult. <laughs> and? You know, there's, there's a lot of talk these days about how um, we're worried about the other 99% and how the, the game hasn't gotten easier for them and, and all these talks about distance and making the equipment and making the game more approachable. I don't think that's what makes it interesting. I think... Um, the type of like you've got a couple of type of people, right? Say you have people that play checkers and chess. Mm-hmm. Then you've got people that play chess who hate checkers. Uh-huh. They they find checkers boring, and I think that's what golfers are like. It's it's the challenge. It's the not knowing whether things are going to go your way. It's the highs and the lows. It's almost like a perfect representation of um, uh, Skinner's box, which was like a psychological experiment done on mice about variable reward and you know you'd, you'd hit a you'd have a reward for every time you hit the lever mm-hmm. and you'd have a either no reward when you hit the um, lever 
or you'd get the same reward. Or in the third one, you got a different reward. You might get no reward, you might get a big reward, or you might get a little reward. Which one do you reckon the mice just went crazy hitting that button for? Oh, I'd only be guessing. The little reward? No, the variable reward. That, that, that's what makes, you know, that, that's what they're doing with Instagram and Twitter and all these sort of things. It's this, it's the variable rewards, which are the most addictive. And I think anyone that plays golf or starts off playing golf, they hit that magic shot once, then they duff it, then they have a terrible day, then they have a good day. And it's really, it's the not knowing what's going on day to day, shot to shot, which just makes the game so maddening and addictive at the same time. And I, and I think we sort of lose sight of that when we start getting into the technology debate and distance and all that sort of stuff, is that the sort of people that love golf, I think, uh, are wired a little differently. And it's not necessarily for everyone. And that's a good thing. There's so much to unpick in there. Not since Bryden McPherson as a tour pro been so cerebral on this program. <laughs> so Sorry. You've, you've got me on the back foot early. I'm remind- And, of course, you're right about that, and it does get lost. In your world, though, in professional golf, many of the players see the game very differently, don't they? There's a, there's a real thing about fairness, and if you hit it in the rough, why should you get a better lie than if I hit it in the rough? We should all be exposed to the same lie. That's the temptation, isn't it, with professional golf? Yeah, 100%. And a lot of that comes down to is there's a lot of money at stake. And, you know, it doesn't seem fair that we can both hit the same shot and my tournament's ruined and your, your tournament's fine and you go on to, to make a lot of money. I, I think that's what it breaks down to. But it, it's a total misunderstanding of what the game of golf really is. Um, and that's unfortunate, but, you know, you see that a lot on tour. Is it inevitable, though, once you introduce that money aspect? Because, of course, it doesn't matter what happens on a Wednesday when I play with my mates. That's the fun of it. It does change, doesn't it, when there's – well, livelihood is one thing, but there's also a lot of ego at the top of it. You don't get good at golf without – some desire to show off and a bit of ego in there too, don't you? Um, I, I mean, I can only speak for myself uh, and it was, it was all to do with that perfect shot. You know, it, that was the addictive feeling to me. And, and then the competition came in and then the fierceness of competition and the fact that it's all on you and it's different to team sports where you have to apologise. My dogs go nuts in the background. <laughs> nice um, to know you've got a dog, though, mate. Humanises. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I got two dogs. That's the oh, problem. Nice. <laughs> there you but, go. It's your um, Yeah, sorry. I lost my train of thought. But um, Addicted to the good shot, the perfect shot, you were saying. Yeah. So, and it doesn't matter how good you get. You know, there's, I remember Jack Nicholas would say that, you know, I only hit two or three perfect shots around. And to me, that's an incredibly high number. <laughs> because, you know, even as golf professionals, I'll, I'll say, I'll talk for all of us, really, really. Like, we hit a lot of great shots, but perfect shots, every now and again, you make that swing and you have that shot where it's just like, wow, that is just exactly what I was trying to do. And it's really rare. When you hit lots of good shots, you hit shots close, you hit shots kind of how you want to, but every now and again, there's that magic shot. And it was almost like chasing that. And it happens so infrequently, even as you got better and better. But, of course, your standards change. But there's something in that where I think that's why a lot of guys would play even if there was no money involved. You know what I mean? Like, like if golf was representative of surfing or skateboarding, I think you'd find it's just as passionate group of professionals out there 
trying to make a little bit of money or some sort of a living and maybe one or two make a great living. Well, now it's everyone makes a great living who's on the PGA Tour. But I still think you'd find you'd get that group of guys who would just do it because they're just addicted to the game and love the competition. Yeah, indeed. That addiction notion, what you're talking about there with the perfect shot, that's that tra- chasing the dragon idea, isn't it? The drug addicts talk about a lot, this chasing <laughs> the dragon. It's, well, uh, that's, it's, uh, that's what variable reward yeah. is. And it's very different to other sports in that the parameters are constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, whether it's a free throw or whether it's even football or, you know, pick a sport, the, the parameters or the playing field are the same and, and, and you sort of know what what's in front of you. Well, with golf, it, so many things can change day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour, that it, it's just completely different. And, and I think... You know, it's not for everybody because it, it's borderline is too difficult. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, yeah. like for a lot of people, golf is far too unenjoyable, but that's fine. It's, it's not, we're not trying to if, – if we want to make a game with two-foot cups and all balls that go straight and everyone hits it 200 yards and every course, every hole's a 200-yard par four and everyone shoots 36 under, I mean, who's going to play that? Good question. It would be interesting, actually, to see who would play. <laughs> I'm sure there's a market for. I'm just not. It's just not, as you say, it's it's not golf, as you know. I think Tiger yeah, Woods said something not, very it's similar. Not golf. Yeah, he said something very similar in his instruction book that he didn't write, didn't he? Way back in 2000, I think it was something along the lines of, <laughs> "If we all shot 61 the first I, look, time out." I, I can't. I'll have to confess, I didn't read Tiger Woods. You, you didn't read his book. Um, you didn't. No, have, I didn't. You, read you didn't have the joy. Sorry. He said the same thing. If we all shot 61 the first time out, you go, yeah, that was dull, and you'd go find another game that was interesting, and that, I think, is what you're talking to. Um, well, no one starts as a scratch golfer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, Tiger Woods started as a 27 handicapper. Like, everyone starts as a complete hack, and that's great. What do you remember about when you started? Let's go back to the beginning. Thing. Obviously, you've, you, you've, you've, there's been a whole journey to get to here in the way you're thinking about the game now. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. What was it for you at the start? Because, of course, your mum is very well known here in Australia and, in fact, internationally as a particularly good player. What role did that play in your golf? I, I think I obviously got exposed to golf. Like, I got exposed to golf really early on. And to be honest, you know, I didn't enjoy it. Um, it was too hard, uh, especially back in the, you know, mid-early 80s where, you know, the idea of getting a set of junior clubs just didn't exist. You had your grandmother's clubs or a cut-down set that basically made them X700s and, you know, away you go, try and play with those. <laughs> Good um, luck. And it was, like, impossible. They're too heavy. Like, it was not a it was not an approachable game. Um, and even from, you know, when a lot of other kids playing it. But funnily enough, it was actually at a tennis tournament when I was, I was, I was a reasonable tennis player and, and looking at doing that. And... Um, a few of my buddies wanted to go and play golf on a day off during the tennis tournament. And I hadn't played golf for years. I was probably like 12 or 13. I probably hadn't played golf for four, three or four years maybe. I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. And mum's like, yeah, we'll go down to Royal Hobart and hit, you know, play a few holes. And that's when it happened, you know. All of a sudden you smash a couple because you're strong enough. And all of a sudden you, you know, somehow hit a, a great wedge in close. And you're like, wow, this is actually fun. This is not what I remember. And from then on it was just I mean I played a lot of sport I played anything that had a ball a racket running around I was in 100% in anything to get out of doing schoolwork. I was you know five days a week and then three games of hockey and football and whatever I could cram in on the weekend and play golf but then slowly golf just took over Mm -hmm. I started to stop playing the other sports I stopped playing tennis and then 
by the time I was sort of, you know, 15, 16, it became, um, you know, I guess grade 12, I then got into the AIS. And once I got into the Australian Institute of Sport, it got like, I can actually maybe do this. And off I went. It gets real and all that sort of stuff. Do we miss that in the modern era? We see a lot of um, young players, really good players, for whom golf has been the only sport ever. Are there dangers in that? Country Webb's talked about this, I think, a few times. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to be able to cross-train. I mean, I'm not sure what the science bears out, but I'd be shocked that multi-sport kids aren't aren't better, um, more adjusted, more resilient than one-sport kids. It's just, it's become a real phenomenon over here, like um, where kids are, it's so important. It's sort of like the track to get into college, you know, let's start this sport early, we'll just play this sport, we'll do the travel teams, then you get on the elite teams, and then you get on the, the varsity team, and then, oh, can I get a college scholarship? And I think there's um, a lot to be said for the cross-training, and just the fun of playing team sports in mm. particular. Like, there is nothing better than being part of a good team, but conversely, when the team's terrible... There's nothing better than an individual sport because, you know, it just comes down on you. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And, and of course, if golf is going to be your game and you haven't played any team sport, you're unlikely to ever get a taste of what that is because there's very little team golf. Yeah, and I'm kind of disappointed. Like, it's a bit of a bummer to find out because I I can't say I keep up with everything that's going on with the the amateur scene down in Australia. But, you know, now that my niece is involved in a lot of it, it's just like, well, the Australian amateurs on this week, no match play. There's no interstate team series. And interstate team series was, I mean, that's my fondest memory. One of some of my fondest memories of playing golf at all. I mean, any golf. Like it was it was such a great week or two weeks because the Australian amateur was there. It was so much fun. You're all thrown together. I mean, I was my first year, I think I was rooming with Mike Leadham, who was he was actually a state cricketer as well, super talented athlete. And but he would have been 15 i don't know i felt like he was 100 years older than me at the time and we're like rooming together playing foursomes together and you just like that experience and that interaction and and that team environment i can't i miss that i think that's why guys love playing presidents cups and Ryder cups it's funny you know we had mark leisure on the show last year and he said that his favorite golf he ever played was pennant golf in melbourne the best times he ever had playing golf. Yeah. And he's still to yeah. this day, for everything he's achieved in the game and contended in majors and all the rest of it, played the President's Cup that to this day is still his favourite golf memories uh, of those. You mentioned the Australian Amateur there, and of course it has moved to a stroke play event. There's a bunch of stuff to think about there, but let's date where we are here. Your niece, you mentioned, is in the field, shot a course record yesterday at Kionga, and he's leading through yeah, two um, days by about four. Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. She's a, she's a real talent and really raw, um, hasn't been exposed to a lot of the like the stuff the kids on the mainland have as far as the coaching and the, you know, and, and just the, like a lot of the, the main, oh, I call them mainland, it's such a funny thing, it's so Tasmanian to call the rest of Australia the mainlanders. <laughs> I'm just thinking how ridiculous that is. But, uh, but the mainlanders, yeah, they always, um, they just have that, they're a lot more polished. And, and for Hallie, there, there aren't many. There's a couple of other girls who are good, but just sticking in for it, into it for as long as she has, and she really loves playing, and she really wants to be good. And the, the last few months, she's just really taken off. Um, that sort of logical progression where you're, you, you have a few good tournaments, you have a round every now and again, you, you sort of around about, but then all of a sudden, but you, you have that ability with your striking. You should be able to shoot five or six under, but you've never done it. Then all of a sudden it happens once and a light bulb goes off. 
And then all of a sudden you break 300 for a 72-hole tournament. And all of a sudden you do it every time. Then you break par for the first time in a tournament. And then all of a sudden it's like these little incremental steps where there's these little glass ceilings you don't realize you've got to bash through. And as soon as you step through them, it you, you don't look back. And I felt like she had that in the last couple of months. And I'm not surprised the way she strikes the ball, that she can go out there and, and shoot a course record. I mean, she, she's, a, she's a real talent, and um, hopefully it looks like she might have a future in the game. What's that like for you to watch that journey unfold? The same journey that you've been on. That's how you know all that stuff, to watch from the other side now. Yeah, it, it's funny because to begin with, I was just letting her go. I mean, I'm not down there. I'm not going to coach her or do anything like that. But in the last couple of months – I've really been like hammer texting when she's playing. Um, just the kind of mental stuff that mm-hmm. I was never exposed to, that, that I was never um, never shown until very late in my career, until like, you know, my mid-early 30s. And that's when my belief in myself and, you know, the, the results really started to happen. And she just you're just not going to get exposed to that playing around Royal Hobart or doing an elite squad thing once every few months. Because um, when you grow up in Tassie, it's really difficult. And, you know, we have that tall poppy syndrome in Australia, but it's even worse in Tassie where it's really difficult to want to stand out and to want to be good. Because mm-hmm. if you're going to be great, you can't think like everybody else. It's, a, it's an abnormal thing to do, to be in the top point oh 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 one percent of golfers in the world you can't think like the other 99.999 that's not how it works mm-hmm. um and if you get exposed to that at an early age i think it can only help you so i've kind of um you know and i do it with a bit of a, a wink and a nudge and a bit of a laugh because it's really difficult when you're that age to look around and be like no i am the best to say to yourself Mm-hmm. I should be better than these girls. I should dominate this. I am the best striker in the field today. Um, but that's how you got to carry yourself. It, like, there's no doubt about that. And you can imagine, you know, a 17-year-old girl growing up in Tassie hasn't won any major tournaments. To be able to carry yourself like that is so foreign and feels like such an out-of-body experience that it's really difficult. But I've been having a bit of fun with it and trying to get it a just little things like if you how are you going today rod how are you going and you'd answer oh, i'm okay i'm all right no no i'm awesome rod i'm awesome i'm so good right now like just to be able to say that over and over again it just starts washing over you and you can say it as a joke but you don't hear too much negativity in in any sort of any scenario from people who are great so i'm just I'm, I'm sprinkling a little bit of that in just for a bit of fun, just to see how she handles it and um, hopefully it'll help her a little bit. They're sort of they're big tests that are kind of bigger than golf, aren't they? You're right. I mean, apart from anything else, having now shot the number and there's a whole bunch of stuff attached to that, which you've already talked about. But then, of course, the, the Mark Hayes, the media manager, comes and puts a camera in your face and wants to interview you and put it on Twitter and write stories about you. And you know, every time you read something about yourself, your Matt Goggins niece and your Lindy Goggins granddaughter, yep. there's a lot to yep. deal with there, isn't there? On top of just the golf, which, as you've said, is hard enough. There's a lot of tests of character happening there. Yeah, they, they call that aftermath imagery. So and it's one of the biggest um, things to over. So Olympic athletes, right, 
they prepare their whole life for that one moment. A lot of the times. I mean, there's other things, there's world championships and stuff, but they're, they're looking for the gold medal or whatever. So you'll have a lot of gold medalists who will go into a complete depression because all they've visualized and all they've thought about and all their world has revolved around reaching the pinnacle. You achieve it, but you haven't thought about what happens next. Next. And so, and and that's why aftermath imagery where it's, you're not even, you don't just visualize yourself winning the Olympics. It's like, okay, what happens after the Olympics? Okay, I'm on, you know, if you're in America, you're on a late show and then this is going to happen. Then I'm going to go on and do this and then I'm going to go on and do that. Do you know what I mean? You've got to almost map it out so that, because what happens to a lot of people is that you realize that everything, when you achieve something great, you're still the same person. You still have the same flaws. You still have the same struggles at home. You still have the same struggles with all the other parts of your life. You achieve this one thing and you think that you would wake up and be different and you realize you're the same and it can be pretty depressing. But of course, the, the and world that, treats you differently, doesn't it, Matt? Which is, I guess, what we're talking about. Yeah, and, and that a lot of that is how you um, – how you expectations versus reality, right? Mm-hmm. It's um, have your you like you might not think your expectations have changed, but all of a sudden everyone's saying you're the US Open champion, mm-hmm. you know, you should be playing like this all the time. When the reality is, is that winning golf tournaments is hard, it's like Tiger Woods's record is just ridiculous, yeah. you know, or Dustin Johnson in the last 12 months, it's just that is not normal, like you know, really great players don't win as often as that. And, you know, you show that you have the ability to be great. It doesn't mean you are great. You know, there's a big difference. So you, you all of a sudden the next week you go out there and you play just normal, but it's not good enough to be a US Open champion. And then you start searching. It's just like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing differently? It's that chasing the the dragon, as you say. And, and, that that's a difficult thing to deal with because really top line golf or real world class golf is just hitting a standard day in day out. It doesn't mean playing out of your skin. It doesn't mean being an unbelievable ball striker. But there's a certain level that you just sort of hit every day, day in day out. And it's whether it's it's through consistent thinking, it's through consistent practice, it's through consistent playing, all those sorts of things. But like that's hard to do and sometimes when your expectations change of what that is and you start raising it too quickly or too much you start getting frustrated when really you just your job is just to hit that standard and just maintain it and then roll the good with the bad and when it's good it's great and when it's bad it's okay and professional golf it's the when it's bad it's okay is probably the key really isn't it in terms of success quote unquote on the course the bad golf has all the guys are good enough to shoot nine ten deep on their day but the guys who turn 75 into 72 are the ones who succeed, aren't they? Um, yes and no. I mean, the reality is that you only have to play well. I mean, you know, there's that old saying, you make 90% of your money 10% mm-hmm. of the time. Mm-hmm. So if you miss half your cuts, but when you're in it, you close out and you're good. You know what I mean? If, if you're a little bit more of an aggressive style of player, I mean, like, yeah, you get frustrated at the missed cuts. But when you do make a cut or you are have a chance, you close the deal, I mean, you're going to have a great career. I mean, it's nice to be solid and finish 30th every week, but it's much better to win every two years. It's not living, is it, 30th every week? Laura Davies talked about this on the well, last episode well, with John Hogan. Yeah, 
I know, but it, like finishing 30th every week, like you have to be such a good player. <laughs> yeah. Like it's an insane level of consistency that 90% of the guys out there aren't capable of. You know, they're not capable of, of being that good day in, day out, 30 weeks in a row. But when they play well, they play really well. And when they play average, they miss the cut. I mean, that that's that's most tour pros. Mm. And what's the difference at that level, Matt? We, of course, at Recreation, I was thinking it must be something to do with the hitting or the – what is the – is it predominantly mental or is it different for different guys? What's the – it's what a, separates? It's only it's only mental. It's me- I mean, because you can argue that putting in a new driver and all of a sudden you start hitting it a yard or two further, but it feels like oh, I'm hitting it way further. I mean, it, it's it's a mental response. You know what I mean? It's like you start to feel better about yourself. You start to feel more confident about yourself. You start to swing more freely because I've got this driver or whatever it is. So yeah, it's it's a consistency of thought. Um, mm. it's hard, you're traveling, you have your family with you or you don't have your family with you, like all those sort of things where it's, it's a grind week in, week out. It's difficult to be um, on top of your game. And no one's learned how to peak anyway. I mean, all this sports science and all this money ball golf or whatever it is, there isn't a, I, I can't think of a single person who's been able to peak at the right weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, deliberately, you know. Yeah. And it, deliberately. Formula, it's a complete yeah. mystery to us. Like, and the funny thing is, is guys tend to play well at the same times of year. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Which is another kind of weird thing if you kind of look back over people's careers where they've played the sort of their best. Because, I mean, you know, we can all talk about Tiger Woods, but if Tiger Woods had been able to peak exactly the right weeks he wanted to every year, he would have won 100 majors. Yeah, he would have won them all, I mean, wouldn't he? Because <laughs> yeah, he was the I mean, best. it would have been a joke. <laughs> yeah. But even Tiger, you know. So it's it's a real mystery. I mean, but I think it's it's consistency of thought, it's consistency of belief, and it it's it can be fickle. They say you know it can take it feels like it can take years to build up a wall of confidence, but it can take one day to destroy it. It's yeah. it's that sort of a game. There's a real lot of wisdom here, Matt, that I'm hearing. Has that? I imagine that's been hard earned. On a serious note, um, it's, uh, introspection, maybe. Maybe a lot of introspection. I think mm-hmm. uh, sometimes, you know, you look back over your career and think of uh, things you learned or lessons along the way that you feel like if you had been able to plug that in earlier or had that little nugget at a different time, it just could have changed everything. Um, and, you know, and I think sometimes when you don't achieve everything you want to do, you spend a lot of time um, – seeing what other guys do and talking to other guys and seeing how they felt and what made them successful. And a lot of the times you find out that we all kind of felt like we didn't achieve what we wanted to do. It's a, it's a weird, it's that sort of a sport, you know, and and then you start to feel like, Oh, okay. I thought I um, wasn't able to do it because of X, X and X when really we all thought like that. And, you know, we're all sort of have the same struggle. So, yeah, it's it's a combination of talking to other players, a bit of introspection and, and experience, I guess. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you, you've been passing on stuff to Ali that you've learned sort of in your early 30s. I find that extraordinary, and particularly in this modern era where we're swamped with information. What sort of, what, what sort of things were you 
talking or thinking of then when you said that early 30s, these sort of mental tips? Yeah, it was, it was a guy called um, Jim Fannin who was a um, kind of a sports psychologist, uh, mental coach. And my, all the sports psychology I had been um, exposed to was all on process. It's like routines, rituals, you know, time this, time that, fill, fill, the, fill this time with thoughts here, et cetera, et cetera. But um, Jim talked a lot about how you carry yourself and how you think about yourself. Um, and he has some great stories. Um, one of um, the favorite ones he would tell me is like he was a, he was a tennis coach and he coached um, the winner of the French Open, an Italian guy. And they were playing in a tournament on, in Washington and um, this guy's, you know, the number one seed, you know, in the tournament. He's gone through the first, you know, three rounds. I think it's the semifinals. He hasn't lost a set. And he's playing an un- basically unseeded guy's ranked 120th in the world or something. And this guy is carrying on like an idiot, um, yelling at people. Um, and he absolutely wipes... Um, Jim's uh, Panada, I think his name was, wipes him off the court. And that's unusual in tennis, right? You don't normally get the number one seed losing to an unseeded player in straight sets, right? It's, it's unusual. So years later, um, another guy, Jim coach, Peter Fleming, was his doubles partner. And they were, they were talking and he asked this player, I coached against you in, this, in, this, in a match in, um, in Washington. He's like, I coached you know, Panada and he, um, you absolutely destroyed him. He's like, yeah, I remember that. And he's like, how do you do that? He says, you're unranked. You're like ranked 120th world. He says, no, no, no. I was the number one ranked player in the world. My ranking just hadn't caught up yet. Right. And that was John McEnroe. Wow. And the way he thought about himself, the way he believed in himself was that I'm the best player out here. Just because my ranking says I'm 125th, that's because no one else knows it. I believe it. And it was those sort of things where growing up in Tassie where you're told you're big-headed, you've got tickets on yourself, look at how cocky you are, look at how arrogant you are, and you would just – you would do anything not to get noticed. And, you know, I've, I've told this – sort of said this before where do you think the kid that wins the Californian state amateur or state junior thinks he's not the best junior player in the world? You know what I mean? He just – like, yeah I'm, the be- yeah, I'm the best junior player in the world. I won in California, no doubt. Guy from Australia, give me a break. So you grow up in Tassie and you win the Tassie Junior or you win the Tassie Amateur. And then it's like, okay, well, you can't do it to the mainlanders, all right? You go and win the Australian Amateur. Okay, well, that's good, but you're only the best player in Australia. You wouldn't beat an American. So then you go over and you play in America and like you, you win tournaments over there as an amateur. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, but you know, you're just an amateur. It, it's never a celebration. Uh-huh. You know, it's never a, wow, you could be really good at this you could be awesome you could have an amazing career well over here you know in the u.s it's more like i call it like the voice syndrome you know the no the what was that um idol you know the idol tv oh, yeah, show yeah, yeah. american australia yeah you know american idol australia okay where you have these people get on and they're interviewed before it's like yeah i'm amazing i'm gonna get picked you know and all this sort of stuff <laughs> and they can they are horrific <laughs> And when they're told they're horrific, they are stunned. They cannot believe it. Like they believe to their core that they were amazing singers. Uh Well, uh, growing up in Australia and growing up in Tasmania particularly, 
you spend your whole time thinking you're never good enough. And that's what I learned in my 30s was just how how important that is. Why do you if you want to be is? exceptional. If you want to be, yeah, that's exactly right. If you want to, as you say, go to those next levels the, where it really does start to get serious. Why do you reckon that is? What do you think it is about Australia? Because every successful Australian will talk about the tall poppy syndrome and all of us who've never tasted any success at anything beyond the Wednesday comp at Mangrove Man will wonder what they're talking about. But as you've laid it out there, it's quite right. You can almost hear yourself saying to someone, oh, yeah, he's got a big head, that kid, because he did one thing good. Why are we like that in Australia, do you think? Any thoughts? I mean, well, I mean, I think it might have a little bit to do with the fact that we we see it as unattractive. We, we like to be um, congenial and happy-go-lucky, and there's something about being arrogant or, or thinking you're better than somebody else, mm-hmm. which rubs Australians the wrong way. And I, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily because, I mean, it is. It can be really unattractive when it's misplaced. You know, it can be really off-putting, and you're just like, "Man, I just wish this guy'd shut up." <laughs> but there's a real um, disconnect between, as I said, trying to do something incredibly abnormal and just trying to be one of the guys. And that's what we run into: is that like we have really tough sportsmen. Do you know what I mean? Mentally tough. And we're, we're known for our grittiness and we're known for our ability to punch above our weight. But, I mean, it's a bit condescending, right? Why, why would being great at a sport, because you're from Australia, be more of an achievement than if you're great at it from anywhere else from in anywhere the world? Mm. Um, so, yeah... It, it's a little bit. I mean, I mean, yeah. It's a little bit condescending, but it, it feels like, oh no, it's a compliment. Yeah, no, we punch above our weight. Yeah, we do really well. But no, but if you, it doesn't matter where you come from. If if you have the talent and the perseverance and the ability, there's no reason why you can't be great. Yeah, I've been thinking about that tall poppy thing. Maybe it's the downside of an an egalitarian culture, which we don't necessarily have, but we love to see ourselves as, don't we, in Australia, very egalitarian and equal, and you know, no, nobody's too big to have fun poked at them yeah Maybe that's the downside and, and, and it's always well it's i think i think culturally i wouldn't say it's a downside but everything has its it's it's good and it's bad i think mm. an un, unintended result mm. is that you can have people who want to achieve great things not realize just how good they are and and then you know but in some sports you know you do get celebrated and we have all sorts of trouble with those athletes and their behavior and stuff like that because they are told how amazing they are from a young age. But um, across a wide variety of sports, I'd imagine a lot, a lot of kids run into this and then elite athletes run into it where they can't believe they, – they, the first time they take a trip overseas, they expect to get smashed. And then they're out there running or they're out there cycling or they're, they're doing whatever, surfing, and they, they look around like, well, hang on a minute, I'm actually – I think I'm better than all these people. And it's like this light bulb goes off. But it's it's rare for someone just to leave our shores and just think, oh, yeah, I'm going to dominate this. It's a hard thing to overcome. Yeah. Well, it kind of – in some ways, it's a it's a testament to, to, to resolve, isn't it, if you do get there despite some of those <laughs> difficulties along the way. Um, if you make it having thought that way or having had that put on you for, for most of your – your developmental years that's a real testament to to how good that you sort of must but be I, I think it i think it does 
um, it, it does help breed the sort of the tough, competitive, I don't care where it is, I don't care when it is, I don't care what the conditions are, I'm here to compete. Okay, you've got more talent than me, I'm going to find a way, you know, because you've always felt that way. You know, you've never felt that, oh, I should beat everybody. It doesn't matter. You're, you're always feeling like you're up against it. So I think that's why. And so, so you could call it an advantage in a lot of respects when you are playing people who are more talented than you or more physically gifted. Mm-hmm. Like you're able to hang in there because maybe you have that little bit of that Aussie battler. I've always been told I'm not good enough and I've always been able to overcome that um, as you go on. It's a hell of a journey, Matt. This golf thing is more than just sort of golf for some people. I suspect you're one of them. You're a clearly intelligent bloke. You're much more widely read and you think more broadly than just golf. But this game itself is extraordinary the way it can engage the mind, isn't it? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure it's that healthy, is it? I'm not sure. No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Of course it's not. (laughs) Let's be honest. My goodness. The amount of uh, self-inflicted misery i've put on myself mentally through the years trying to crack this is it you know i can see how you can descend into a little bit of madness because sometimes you have those moments where it's just like wow how did i get that mad about that uh, that I, I was that was an out-of-body experience right there how does that happen but uh yeah i mean it's been an interesting journey i, I think um the difficult part has been for i was always People always said I should be doing better than what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've got, got a great golf swing. You're such a great ball striker. must be your attitude. It must be this. It must be that. Um, well, inside, I'm just I'm, – I'm trying everything. You know what I mean? And I'm disappointed too. So you can end up having a career like mine and look back at it and be like, wow, that was just a total disappointment, waste of time. I was supposed to do so much more. Everyone told me along the way. And you don't – you don't reflect on it as if, well, hang on a minute, you grew up in a small town in Tassie when no one ever got to the PGA Tour. No one was really a, ever got to the Australian Tour. Like, there weren't professional golfers. Um, and you don't see anything you did as an achievement. You see it as just a disappointment and, like, shoulda, coulda, woulda, shoulda, coulda, woulda and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I, it's, it, it's tormenting, I'll be honest. It can be really tormenting. But you've also got to then put some perspective on it and, wow, what an amazing journey it was to go from where I, you know, at one point I'm playing a tournament in Moscow, Moscow, and you're just like, how the hell am I here? You know, I'm playing golf in Moscow for money. <laughs> from Hobart. Like, this is ridiculous. From Hobart. You know, I've been to more countries um, than you could ever have imagined. You know, I had the opportunity to get to make, an incredible living during those times and people ask you they'll they'll talk about a place be like yeah, yeah i've been there yeah i mean it's kind of almost annoying like you become that annoying person where it's like you've pretty much been everywhere seen everything and it was just all because of golf and just the the opportunity it afforded me is just you know you you just got to be so thankful because i, I can't imagine there, there's so many different ways your life could have turned up turned out just staying in Hobart and, and all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, so it's, it's been pretty incredible. You can't get much deeper into the first world than what you and I have done for our respective livings, can you? Writing about people who play golf for a living or playing golf for a living. 
And you can lose sight of a lot of real stuff in the world in that bubble, can't you? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, you can say that about anyone and anything at any time. There is, there. I think uh, we're kind of built to compartmentalize everything. There's, you know, there's so many things going on in the world at, at certain times, even when things are, like, being difficult for you. You can always, you can always go down and find someone doing way worse and having a much harder time. So you should stop feeling sorry for yourself. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't feel sorry for yourself because you're going through what you're going through. But and those things are yeah, really I mean, yeah, it, it's complex. Isn't they're it? real. I mean, they feel real to you. I mean, yeah. I, I remember a story of a fellow um, player was telling me about his best buddy who had just um, was basically would, couldn't get out of bed. He was so um, so frustrated and down after blowing a tournament. And this is a guy who'd won multiple majors, um, and w- was basically just talking about how I can't do it. This golf doesn't do anything for me and all this sort of stuff and and i'm just getting started on the on the tour and i'm thinking wow i would give anything to have Mm. your career Mm -hmm. and 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 to experience that but he had just had a tournament that he felt he should have won it was what it was a major and he felt like he should have this was going to be another crowning achievement and he made one or two little mistakes coming in lost the tournament and he's just like you know it's the end of the world the world sucks his world, you know, yeah, we all live in our own yeah, world, don't we? Exactly, it's, it's exactly. The, and it, like, you know, it's easy to sit there and go, "Well, you know, what about the starving children in Ethiopia?" Type thing, but um, you can't take that way he feels and the way he's responding and just dismiss it entirely as well. No, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. You mentioned their torment, Matt, and uh, you know, I recall because I. We're roughly the same age. I'm older than you, but I was writing about you when you were emerging as a player here in Australia and have written about you for your whole career at you know various points and, and whatnot. You mentioned Torment there, of course, and you were seen as and were one of the best players, young players Australia had uh, for a really long period there. You broke the 20-year-old course record in the Masters and got dusted up by a couple by Brad Hughes. <laughs> Some extraordinary yeah. sort of performances and and no question an extraordinary talent. Probably a, 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 a more naturally gifted player than many. So what was that journey like from the other? From, from the outside, it looks like one thing. It sounds like from the inside, it feels very different. I just read a fascinating piece that Beth Ann Baldry now, formerly Beth Ann Nichols for those of us of a certain era, wrote about Yanni Singh, who's down to 900 and something in the world. From mm-hmm. five majors, yeah, in she was incredible. Two, yeah. two years and completely dominant, and she talked about some of the similar sort of stuff to what you're talking about. You, there's stuff you can't see from the outside, isn't there? Yeah, I, I think it was more early on. Um, I would hear that a lot, and, and then you know I got to the point where you know I felt like I had a really good chance to win the British Open, and I was a top fifty player in the world, and it just felt like it was just start. Okay, it's like okay, I'm here now. Now it's time to just keep hitting this standard and keep moving it along and keep presenting myself with the opportunities and um, hopefully I'll take advantage of a couple. Um, yeah, and then I, I had a bad year, lost my card, got my card back and then um, Ramsey McMaster died and I, I, it just – my coach had died when I first turned oh, – like my first year on tour – my grandfather had died the first week I was a pro. And then when Ramsey died, I don't know. 
it became, sorry, I'm, I haven't really talked about this that much. Sorry. Yeah, so, <clears throat> yeah, but I, I hadn't dealt with it, right? And, um, yeah, it, 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 all of a sudden I, it became, I have to do this for them, right? I had to do it because to prove that, that Ross was a great coach, that Ramsey was a, he was a great mate, but a great physio. And I just started putting way too much pressure on myself because I, I wanted to do it for them so desperately. And, um, yeah, and then I hurt my wrist and that was that, basically. So it was, it, it was, it was a little bit, you know, world interrupted, you know, yeah. just out of the blue. Because none of that's really got anything to do with golf per se, does it? Yet it's got everything to do with golf because your life is wrapped up in golf. Golf isn't your life, but it's it's all wrapped up together, isn't it? So that out things away from the course. Yeah, and that and that's that's what you don't like. That's part of the journey, right? That that's the interesting thing about golf, professional golf, compared to other sports, is that you it's so long, the careers are so long, you know, you're at it for 20 years, you get to see them when they're kids, you get to see them when they're first, you know, falling in love, they have their their first wife, you know, first wife, that's <laughs> funny, it's a slip there, um, then when they have kids and then having to deal with kids going to school and all these sort of things that that most athletes get to do behind closed doors, you know what I mean, their careers mm-hmm. are finished. Mm-hmm. So there's guys go through some really difficult things, whether it's with um, disabilities with their kids, or sudden trauma with their ki- with their kids, or with families and all that sort of stuff. And and everyone goes through stuff, but you you can't anticipate the effect that's going to have or on a particular career. For some people, it inspires them. For other people, it derails them. And for for other people, they have a, a, an average time and then they get back to it and all that sort of stuff. And and also, you know, you play the game long enough, you're probably a good chance you'll go through some injuries. So it, it instead of a really condensed time of what happens to a footballer or something where it's like all these things happen in, in sort of five, six, seven years and then they're, they're gone, you get to have this really long, drawn-out, like, uh, relationship with the person's career. Yeah, and then, of course, you get people like Peter Senior who essentially took his 40s off to be with his kids and his family and be at home on the Gold Coast and then restarted his career in his 50s and did some extraordinary yeah. things. Yeah. What a uh, what a player and what a, what no, a unbelievable. golfer. Yeah, great player. Yeah. And, and a lovely – Maybe may, may we'll, bl- we'll blame the equipment for that, right? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> now, now. We're, we're not going to go there Big just way. yet. Yeah, not going to go there <laughs> just yet. One of the really good blokes in golf too. One of those guys who's a real mentor to younger players, and I'm not sure whether that's still the case as much as it used to be, but he's one who's a real mentor and has been a great mentor, I think, to younger players. He's always open to people coming and talking to him. Do you do much of that? Do you get people, young players, come to you asking for advice? Should they? Um. No, I won't give them any. You know, keep it close to the chest. No, I'm happy. I'm <laughs> You're happy trying to, to beat them. You know, I'm happy to. <laughs> exactly. Still, um, man, these guys are so polished. I feel like sometimes there's not a lot I can say to them. Like I look at them, like, well, you've, you know, you got a great golf swing, you smash it, awesome short game, attitude's great. What am I going to tell them? You know. Um, but you know, there's a few little tidbits here and there 
Um, I think sometimes when I play with these guys, you find yourself observing, just like, oh, okay, I see what's going to happen here. You, you can see patterns that you saw in yourself or things that you would do or what other players do. And you probably have a little bit more um, – you feel like you have a little bit more of gravitas to go in and say to someone who you've only played with once, like, hey, mate, those last few holes, you slowed down way too much. You've got to keep your routine the same no matter what. I, you, I could tell you are thinking. I could tell you. You could see that you're close to qualifying, but you've just got to keep playing at the same speed, something like that. And where if you're younger and you're competing, there's no way you're going to say that. Well, as you get a bit more experience, you you know. And if he's like, well, stuff you mate, what do you know? That's fine. I know. <laughs> it doesn't bother me. But um, yeah, you, yeah, well, you, you sort of feel like you can say that a bit more. Well, it's lived experience, isn't it? It's the confidence of lived experience as opposed to cockiness, which is a different thing. Where you think you know everything, even though you True. might not. When you when you've lived it, it's a it's a bit different. You were a really intense golfer, Matt. You once told me that. You would sometimes get white line fever, and you mentioned the, some of the misery you've put yourself through. What role does that and emotion play? And clearly, it doesn't stop you from being good at the game. Um, what's the trick with having a uh, such an intense sort of approach to the game? Because you're clearly a naturally aggressive sort of a, a player. Um, um, yeah, it was the, the intensity came from well. I'm, intensely competitive i hate losing i mean i was driven more by hating losing than i was the the pleasure of winning like right. you know and some people play just because they want to win some people play because they hate losing for me it was you know hating to lose but there was also this i guess i'm maybe a little bit of a perfectionist when it comes to golf and it's like hitting those high quality shots and being knowing that you should be playing at a certain level and then going out there and not playing at, a, at that level would just drive me crazy because it's just like, I can do this. Why aren't I doing this? And really, it was a lack of education or a mentor or someone to be like, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, this happens when you're under pressure. This changes. You know, you've, you've got to not go, not everyone plays, hits perfect shots all the time. But you watch TV or you watch players that are better than you and you have this expectation that, I have to be perfect, right? And it's that, it's that whole thing of like, you know, growing up in Tassie, it comes back in another loop or growing up in Australia where you feel like you have to do more because everyone's better than you as opposed to what you've got's enough, right? And that's probably the biggest... Once I understood that, that sort of temper and, and it, it kind of all just went away. It's just like, you're fine. You don't have to be perfect. It's just about having consistent thought and what you've got's enough. Um, and I felt like if anyone had said that to me at a lot earlier, it um, would have had a big impact. But sometimes you're not even ready to hear those things. You know, I was going to say, would you have 19, listened? 20, 25, <laughs> you might not have listened. You might have been yeah. like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I, I duck hooked it off six into the water. How is that good enough? You know, yeah. that probably would have, uh, well, that definitely would have been my response. That's right. Um, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, now it's just like, okay, you just, you know, it's just consistency of thought, consistency of thought, or when I was playing. Professional golf might be the very worst pursuit for somebody who hates losing because even Tiger Woods spends by far the bulk of his time not winning if that's how you define losing. So I guess what's important in that is, Matt, how do you define losing? You hate to lose. What what does that mean to you? What is losing? Yeah, I, I, I think it becomes not playing at the standard you feel like you should be playing. Like, like if you go out there and play – well and lose fine um but it, it so one of the th- <laughs> it was funny like so 
the first time I got into the world match play, um, I played the first round and I win the first round. And I remember walking off the course and that night thinking, this is the best feeling ever. It's a Thursday or Wednesday and I feel like I, like I won something. You know, I won my match. I got that little rush of like, okay, job well done. It didn't matter really how you played or what was going on. You could have shot, you know, you could have played poorly and still won. But you walk off going, wow, that feels great. Like match play is amazing for that because after years of just banging it around in stroke play, you never get that little reward all the time of there's a win. Hey, you won today. Well, in other sports, all other sports, you generally get that feeling. You might lose in the third round, but you won the first two matches. So at least for some of the week, you felt good before you felt poor. Well, in golf, you can generally tend to feel you can have a whole week and feel miserable. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if Roger Federer had Tiger Woods' winning record, we never would have heard of him. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, exactly. exactly. It's just, I mean, different sports, and like, and I get that, right. but, but it is, yeah. it is it's yeah. an interesting point you raise. Is like, what are the tricks you got to play on yourself? Mm. Um, and And that's where you get right into the process. And that's what sports psychology sort of gets you in. You know, you're not judging the result. You know, there is no judgment of any shots. You know what I mean? It's just next shot, it's target. Did, you know, did I hit the target? Was it the right trajectory? Yep, yep. Okay, next shot. Um, you know, like post-shot routines, you know, links into the next pre-shot routine. It's, you know, never going into the past unless it's for tactical reasons. All these sort of like basics of sports psychology. Um, that's how you thread days and weeks together and you can build momentum and not be like, man, I lost again. Man, I lost again. Man, when am I ever going to win? I think about that Masters. I think you and Brad finished five, six, seven shots in front of everybody else. It was almost match play by the Sunday. The two of you were the only two really with a legitimate chance to win the thing. As I said, you broke a – I think it stood for 18 years, the record that Norman had held around. I I think you broke it by two or three, and I think Brad ended up breaking it by five. It's hard to say that's a loss, isn't it, even though you didn't win because it's an extraordinary performance. There are different checkpoints, you know, as I was mentioning about Halley, like – there are different little checkpoints and different little glass ceilings um, that you need to test yourself and break through uh, along the way. That can you that make you feel great, whether it's you know getting through Q school or shooting a course record. For me, it was playing in the last group at the Masters and playing well. You know, playing, getting that exposure of playing under like the most intense pressure and 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 handling it. All of a sudden, it's just like, well, that's good. Next time, I'll be able to. you know i've got the tools to handle that because a lot of the times until you've tested yourself um you don't really know you you can have all this you know if you want to call it false bravado and and confidence but there is something completely different like when you're standing on that team you can't feel your hands and you know you really can't think clearly and you're basically relying 100 percent on your routines and the rituals and that's what get you through it to experience that um, is very different to going in there thinking you're going to handle it well versus actually handling it well. You can't practice it either, can you? There's no way to practice no, being in the last no. group Sunday except by being in the last group Sunday. It's the only way you can No, there's no, way, there's no way you can practice it, um, but there is certainly a way you can react to it going well or poorly, and, and that's the consistency of thought. It's sort of like no matter what, I'm going to think this. I'm going to wake up as the best putter in the day. Every time I miss a putt, I'm the best putter in the world. You know, it's just like that sort of thing where it can be completely illogical. But you, you listen to players 
Um, like so, like Jack Nicholas would say, never missed a three footer. And then there was that famous um, uh, Lee Trevino was, I guess, commentating and and basically saying, well, he likes to peek on these short putts and like and miss them. And um, Jack missed it, and Lee was like, ha ha, you know, I told you so, blah blah blah. And then you know, you t- asking Jack about it, he's you can't even remember missing it. It, it never happened. Right? So yeah. it's like it's this, it never happened. Yeah, you know. Yeah. That great um, Gary Player line, you know, fast greens one week. I love fast greens. They're my favourite. And the next week, they're slow greens. I love slow greens. They were, you, do yeah. what you, you do what you have to do. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. for some people, it's just a, a natural state. Mm-hmm. But while for other people, it's something they learn. And, um, and that's where the exposure to it and all that sort of stuff can be huge at the right, at the right time. Yeah. We, we, we've touched on the last groups Sunday, of course, the most – uh, I would imagine for you would be a memorable one. Last group Sunday was at the Open in 09, playing with Tom Watson. I've spoken to you about this before, but not sure whether people sort of heard that. That must have been an extraordinary experience for a kid from Hobart. That's a hell of a journey, isn't it, to the first tee Sunday <laughs> afternoon, Turnbury, with a five-time well, Open champion, maybe about to author one of the greatest sports stories in history. Yeah, well, it wouldn't have been if he won, because if I won, <laughs> you, <laughs> would have you been, would have been, been Stuart Sink. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Um, you, you know, it's like going back to what we sort of opened, you know, talking about uh, the stuff, the times I really love golf and really remember it being great were things like the Interstate Series. It's playing, you know, as we spoke on uh, on a different podcast, playing in the chicken run, playing with my grandfather, playing with my dad, playing with my sister and my mum. Like that's I, – I think about those memories and they are the, you know, the best memories and the greatest thing about golf. A lot of your great memories or things you're remembered for in go- in competitive golf are sometimes your hardest toughest um moments and although that was a great experience Mm. i wake up every you know it's it might be once a week now but i reckon every day i would wake up thinking about what i could have done and i could be the open champion and just how that would have changed my life and how would have changed everything about it and um you know i'll let you you know my, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Maybe I am mentally tortured, and you know, I should just shut up. The uh, <laughs> the like, I still have this dream where you know you, you've win, you've won a tournament, right? And it's so real, whether whatever tournament it is, and then you wake up feeling that feeling, right? It's just like I'm the Open champion, I'm the Masters champion, and then all of a sudden it hits you. It's like no, you didn't win anything. And it's, and it's just like you instantly just like go, oh, that's, oh, I'm crushed. My day's ruined. And it's just, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only athlete that has had that feeling. You know, it's funny. I, I remember reading an article as someone had, um, I, th- I guess Pat Rafter was on a podcast. And they were shocked afterwards that he talked about how disappointing losing Wimbledon was and just how that crushed him and how he thought about it all the time. And and their attitude was like, oh, well, you know, he made $800,000, he won two US Opens, you know, what a great career, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's the moments that you didn't take advantage of, which are the ones that really, mm. you know, they really sit with you for a long time. And, you know, I could see how someone like Rafter, I, I mean, I'd imagine all professional athletes 
no matter what they've done, remember the ones that got away or that, the disappointment of, course, yeah. of, of that not happening. Yeah. So, yeah, that experience was amazing and I look back at it as amazing, but it was also incredibly bitterly disappointing because there was a moment in – there was a moment where I finally felt settled, you know. You, you start off and you can't feel anything. You don't know, you know, you can't feel your hands – you can't feel your body. You feel like you're having an out-of-body experience. The only way you're actually playing is because you've played so much. You know, you, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, where the club was or how quickly I was taking it away, any of that sort of stuff. But there's a moment um, kind of midway through the front nine heading in the middle of the back nine where it's just like I felt really in control of myself. I was ripping it. I was hitting it. I was hitting good shots. You know, I was flagging everything and – it didn't seem like it was big, you know. It just felt like this is – it, it seemed like I was in the tournament and I was I had a really good chance to win it and, you know, you're not thinking about whether it's a major or anything. It's just another golf tournament. It's another round. I'm in control. You know, I can finish this out and have a chance to win. So that's the bit where it just sort of turned on a shot or two and um, where you look back and just like, man, I really had a great chance there and it just didn't happen. I would imagine the hard thing about that, Matt, is you don't know and nobody knows how many of those chances you might ever have. And that's the same for everybody there on that Sunday. That's why it's such compelling viewing, isn't it? Because everybody's got the same sort of thing at stake in a way. What? As a player, you just think you're going to do it the next week. Okay, well, next week I'll get them. Next week. Okay, PGA, win the PGA, whatever it is. Like, you, you don't actually have any thought that that's going to be your last opportunity at all. Um I think that's why, you know, guys chase it a bit too late. You know what I mean? But that's why guys are still at it. That's why guys are still grinding when you're thinking like, what are you doing, man? Why are you still trying to play? It's because you still think, you know, I can get back to that level and I can take advantage of that opportunity, you know, and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, at no point are you thinking um, while you're playing, this is it. This is my chance. It just, it doesn't work like that. As Clates likes to say quite often, you know, nobody thought as Palmer walked off the green after winning his last major, at that moment, if you'd said that's it for him, no more, you know, they would have taken you away and locked yeah, you up. And, uh, and the one person who never thought it was Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer. That's exactly right. And for, You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't have – for the next 20 majors, he that's would have right. thought he was going to win the next one. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. It's a, it's a hell of a thing. What do you, what do you, on the golf aspect of it? What do you remember? You said there was a moment sort of during the back nine and things turn on a shot or two. What do you recall? Do you recall in that 09 Open where things sort oh, of turned? Oh, yeah. No, I know exactly where it was. Huh. It was into, so it was 18, 17, 16. It was into 14. I just, I'd hit great shot in. I hit an average putt on, um, I had a good putt for Birdie, I think to maybe take the lead on the short par four. And the next hole is a strong hole back into the breeze. And I ripped a drive. It was perfect. And I was in between clubs. I was in between a three and a four iron. And the day before, the, the pin was back shelf. And I had a similar yardage, just a little bit more. And I remember just ripping a three iron and just right at the flag. And it was just like, oh, it's going to go long. And long's dead. And it managed to just, just stay on the top, top of the back edge of the green. And I had a little bit less than that, and the wind was the same, just like, well, it's in between three and four. It's like if I hit the three and I trap it, it might go, you know, might go long. Um, I'll trap a four iron, and that'll be perfect, right? And I hit it, and I ripped it, and I'm like, it's perfect. And it just started to climb, and it's just the wind hit it like a wall and, like, took it a little left and then went down into the bunker. 
I did an okay bunker shot to about five feet and then missed the putt. But that's the moment where I'm just like, man, you know what? I should just, just should have hit three iron, you know? Because <laughs> um, then after that, I mean, the, the shot into the par three on the next, I hit perfect and it just, you know, links golf, howling down breeze. You're trying to land it, you know, one yard, you're long, one one yard too short, you don't get up the tier and then, you know, you land it perfect. So it was just one of those shots and um, it was actually a really good shot. So, yeah, I really think more about that that moment of the um, the three or four on where if it was it was the the shot the day before that influenced my uh, my club selection, and I, I think I chose the wrong one. So, yeah, that's that's really what I go back to, back it's, to. It's kind of golf. So, and then, and then you had the Doug Sanders for. Ten years after, sometimes you go fifteen minutes without thinking about it. Was that was his famous line, wasn't it? Sometimes he goes fifteen minutes without thinking about that. Yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, I mean, it's true. I'm, I'm, it wasn't that bad, but like, yeah, I mean, it's a good figure of speech. Like, yeah, like I definitely think about it a lot. Think about it a lot. Yeah, you've said was a couple of times. Golf's not over for Matt Goggin, surely. Competitive golf. No, no, no. I. I I actually played today, Rod. You'd be happy. First played nine <laughs> holes. First, first, first time on the course this year. Chicken run. Hit it pretty You've good. Introduced it to the Carolinas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, actually, actually, someone came up to me and asked me about that. I thought that was hilarious. Um, they had no idea what, what we were talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would. I love golf. Um, I love competitive golf. Um, I would, you know, I don't get to choose though. You know, I don't get to choose whether I'm good enough or whether I'm going to get the opportunity. I can just put in the work, um, you know, and, and try and get back out there. But, you know, it's I'm, you don't – I'm not retiring. I'm getting retired. That's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> you're in that kind of grey professional golf zone, aren't you? I think you're, you're over 40 now and that yeah, between and 40 and 50 yeah. is – it's a grey zone, isn't it? Yeah, you've got the kids playing on the flat belly tour who all seemingly pound at 350 and – Dead straight off the tee, and you've got a few years yeah. to the to the Champions Tour. What? Where do you go? Yeah, and it's also do? it's also changed a little bit with the with the no Q school and making you play Corn uh-huh. Ferry um, and and all those sorts of things. It's I think a lot of guys would probably um, if there was if there was um, a Q school for the main tour would, would probably not be out there chasing it on the Corn Ferry so much. They do some qualifiers, maybe play a few you know, mini tour or local um, events and then get ready for Q school. But because they sort of force you through that, um, there are a lot of guys, you know, sort of my age who are good players who are on tour who are sort of out there still chasing it. And, and, it, and, it, and it feels like, as you say, a real sort of no man's land because you're seeing them all the time. It's just like, what are you doing here doing the qualifying? Like, well, I kind of have to do it. I've got nothing else I can really, no other avenue. So they kind of force you through that now. Has that been a good thing, do you think? A lot of us didn't think that was a great idea when they first announced it. Q School was always one of the great potential, well, talk about compelling entertainment, you know, blokes literally livelihoods living and dying on single shots. There was a cruelty to it, but as entertainment, which professional golf is, fantastic. It's really changed the nature of the game or the path and progression in professional golf for a lot of people, Yeah, the, the, all the reasons why they did it haven't borne out to be true. Um, it didn't get another sponsor. It didn't get like it didn't bring more money um, to the Corn Ferry. It, it, um, the, to, there's no al- bring more money to the. Well, corn this ferry. is back when they made the change. Ferry. They, they, they basically wanted it to be a little bit more self-sufficient and mm. and to be able to grow the purses. So they thought having this this finals and these these events that um, 
had PGA players and Corn Ferry players playing together to get their card would be compelling and and um, would raise you know maybe a sponsor's interest. But like so like the FedEx did everything and more um, for what they were trying to achieve on the PGA Tour, right? The goal was they wanted to have compelling golf and have everyone playing after the PGA, okay, success. So that's fine. But the the Corn Ferry one is didn't really achieve anything um, that it was proposed, um, but that's just the way they do it now. It's complicated things enormously. It used to be fairly straightforward. Finish top 25 at the Q School, you get a card, you go play the big show. Now it's four weeks of mixed fields and who stands where and there's two money lists going and a little yeah. bit like the FedEx Cup. Yeah, just it's- way too complicated for fans to be interested. I mean, it'd be hard enough for players to keep up, but... For fans, it's like, yeah, oh, forget you know, it. Let me know who's that, there in uh, the end. What's that rule? Keep it simple, stupid? Keep it simple, stupid. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> the, the bigger the money gets, the harder that gets to do, though, isn't it? If FedEx comes to you with, you know, $50 million a year to give away, you've got to think of a way to give it away. Um, and that won't necessarily be yeah, simple. I, I, I don't have so much as an issue that, like, the, the, the FedEx Cup is an extraordinary success for what it was trying to do. Mm. Um, forget whether you think the – Winning the FedEx Trophy has any meaning? Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, like, like the fact that now you have three weeks um, of the best players on tour or the best players in the world, really, because they all try and get over here, um, playing three weeks in a row during the traditional dead season, silly season, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I think you know that's a huge success. Hasn't done much for us here in Australia, of course. The availability of top players to spread themselves around the world at that traditional end of year time, which is when most of our tournaments are played. We used to play early in the new year. Now we play predominantly at the back end of the year. It's made things more and more difficult there, hasn't it? What about Australian golf? What do you perceive? For- no, we've just been we've just been priced out. Yeah. Like we've been priced out. Like you can't compete with nine million dollar tournaments with you know, and 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 even the um, appearance fees like. Tiger Woods turned, you know, a top-level appearance fee of, you know, $250,000 for the, you know, the next best or one of the best back in the, you know, early 2000s. Tiger Woods comes along, it's $3 million, and all of a sudden the other guys go, well, okay, maybe I'll change it to a million. If he's at three, and then they'll one. get mm. they'll, they'll, they'll get takers, and, you know, all of a sudden you know, that's a big ask. You know, it's fine to pay $3 million to have Tiger Woods back then because, you know, the profile – and what it did, you know, is money well spent, right? Just pay him and nobody else. But it, it's more difficult when you're paying out big money for players who don't necessarily move the needle. Like, they, they're good for the tournament, but they don't, you know, it's hard to justify sometimes. So I think we just got priced out. And if you're competing with tournaments in Asia where there's, you know, a lot more money or through the UAE or you know, Middle East Africa especially events, wherever it is yeah. yeah it's just became I think we just got priced out priced out and guys bellies are full you don't need to chase the money no that's right you've just made three million dollars like what do you want to get go down there and get paid an extra you know whatever I mean for the Aussie players it's a no-brainer because we love coming back and playing um, but even then you still have players playing the million dollar or, you know, they'll go and play a tournament and skip the PGA or whatever it is because they're getting pay- paid more appearance fees. Um, so the politics ha- of it are, are quite tricky. Yeah. Or having to stay in the States and keep their FedEx Cup or money up to keep their card for the following year. I mean, that's a 
uh, Matt Jones couldn't yeah. defend the Australian Open one year for that very reason. He just couldn't make the case yep. that it was better yep. to come home than sort of stay. You touched on something there. I just want to go down a little rabbit hole because I wrote about this this week and I'm still not sure what it is I was trying to talk about or think about. Players that move the needle, what's that about? Hmm. That? Why do some move the needle and some don't? So well, for me, it's Q rating, right? Isn't it Q rating? Impressions? Uh, I, I don't think there are too many, to be honest. I think there are, there are global phenomena yeah. athletes and then there's just the best athlete at said sport. Um, so when you have someone who's transcendent like Tiger Woods, mm-hmm. that's very different. And, and, you know, Greg Norman was like that, let's be honest. Very much. Like, when he, you know, when he played in the early 80s in America, like they, like he was such a big deal over here, you know. Mm. Um, Not to mention here. That sort of, yeah, but I mean like it was unusual for a non-American to take the, like the US tour by storm like that. Like that, that was a real shock. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you can have great players, um, you know, Rory or, you know, when Jordan Spieth came out, they're great for the tournaments and they're, they're unbelievable golfers. But they're never going to be in the transcendent um, zone. And so golfers, you know, a lot of sports never have one. Golf's been lucky to have, you know, Tiger Woods. And, you know, at, the time, at that time, he just guaranteed your tournament was going to be globally covered. And, and, you know, you can get addicted to that, right? Like it's like the unrealistic expectations. You know, all of a sudden you th- sponsors start thinking, well, we need to have that level of impression. We need to have that level of coverage every year. Otherwise, we can't justify the spend. So, you know, and, and that's sort of the argument against having the President's Cup, right? Maybe the President's Cup's more, done more damage to the Australian tour than help. It's been great for advertising you know, Australia, it's been great for, but it sucks a lot of the money, all the corporate money mm. that you might have been able to, you know, put together. You know, someone who's buying a, a, a skybox during the President's Cup, that could be enough to actually run a tournament. Yeah, that's right. You know, right. It's not really, you know and so there's not an unlimited amount of money towards advertising. But, I mean, in relation to the Australian tour, the big thing for me is just how different, the sponsors are from the eighties and nineties. You know, like the Johnny Walker, Heineken, these global brands, um, Microsoft. Like, we really struggle to get corporate support yeah. from Australian companies, and I can't really pinpoint that. I, I don't know why there's a reason for that, but for a sport that is as highly regarded global, right in a lot of the marketing demographics for some of Australia's biggest companies for it not to be considered when it comes to putting on a major event is a little bit mystifying. It probably ultimately comes down to that needle movers, the the expense of, and you've got to have at least one. I mean, Adam Scott will move the needle in golf in Australia, but Mm -hmm. probably in reality, not enough for a big global business who's looking just at numbers to say, well, that makes it worth the investment. To his credit, Adam Scott comes back here and plays almost every year, uh, which is- Yeah, and the other thing is there's such, like we've had, not only are they good, great players, they're such great ambassadors. Oh, yeah. And they're just, they're good people. And I, 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 I never understood when I was on tour how none of us, 
nobody ever got an Australian sponsor. I understand we're not in Australia, so mm-hmm. you're playing the US tour, whatever. But yeah, it was. Um, they're more likely, like obviously, football and rugby and those sorts of sports. You know, rule the landscape, and you know, it's hard to argue that if you put your name on the Sharon, you know, you're going to be. And that costs the same amount as what it does to put on a golf tournament. Well, it's hard to say, well, you know, we have millions of people over the year watching the ball bounce around, you know, and, and advertising it versus that one week. Um, how do you guarantee that you're going to get the global exposure or the, the you're going to break through all the noise of all the other tournaments and all the other events and all the other competing, you know, advertisers for that, for that dollar spend. So, so I get that, but you know, there's a little bit different model over here with the sponsorship with golf tournaments, which, which maybe we should be trying to do in Australia, but uh, I I never understood why we couldn't get some support for, you know, some of the best players. Yeah. It's, and you're, as you're right, Adam Scott, you can't sing his praises enough as an ambassador for the game, not just for Australia. What a phenomenal job. Hmm. He does sort of as a spokesperson, all of which of course is about playing golf, Matt, but on the side, just as a bit of a side hustle while you've been a battle, you've decided to go into golf course ownership with the Seven Mile Beach Project. That might be the wrong way to couch it, ownership, but golf course yeah. development, which having been around the game your whole life, surely you'd have to be mad to even consider us. Tell us tell us a little bit about Seven Mile Beach. I mean, people will be familiar with the announcement the other week, obviously, that uh, CDP have been officially named as the, the designers of the project, but it must be extraordinarily exciting and somewhat nerve-wracking in some ways to be at this point in what's been a long journey yeah it's it's incredibly exciting um it has been a journey it it it, you know i think i mean i've told the story a few times but it kind of started up growing growing up in that area um playing royal hobart playing tassie golf club messing around on the beach wandering down through the dunes and just and, and as you got a little bit more savvy and started realizing what good golf course land is like you started having that you know realization like man why did why isn't there golf in here why did Royal Hobart move to its site why did Tassie move to its site why didn't everybody move down here so when um I kind of just expected that it would happen one day and then Barnboogle Dunes came along which was just a complete uh, black swan event I mean who could have predicted that Mm. that that would be there and be that successful. Like, it's easy to go back and say, oh, yeah, it's obvious, you know, great golf course, public, good, good atmosphere and all those sorts of things. But it was con- was madness, really. Oh, beyond um, madness. No accountant beyond would give you the okay to you know, do that. <laughs> no accountant. <laughs> no. Um, and, you know, I kind of felt a little bit the same way when I was talking to, talking to Clates about it. Um, so then when that was successful – I just I just assumed the very next spot that would happen would be Seven Mile Beach because it, it was unusually underdeveloped and underutilized. You know, it's crown land. It's you know beautiful beach. And what is it at the uh, moment? Beautiful Matt? sandy soil. It, it's it still was... it's crown land. It's still crown land. Right, and um, but it's locked off. Is that right? There's gates you can to get through there. And yeah, yeah. So so it's sort of like I you know passive recreation, which basically means you go for a walk. Well, you know, so there's some um, people ride horses around there, but more, mostly on the beaches and on the other side. But, um, yeah, but it basically has a gate that's locked because there's a sand mine operation through the middle, so you can't go through that road. And then the, the southern road access is locked too. So you can only walk in. 
And it's, you know, it's three kilometres from the point of entry just to the first part of our site. So to get it really into the middle, it's a 5K walk and it's not, it's really soft sand, you know what I mean? Soft grey sand. So it's a bit of a slog. So people don't really get down and in there and, and have a good look around. I'm sure some people do. I mean, I've seen the odd person walk their dog in the first few hundred metres. I might have seen one or two horse riders um, at the at the start of the site, but it's very underutilised and it never made any sense to me. So so after Barnboogle Dunes, I'm like, okay, well, the next one's going to be Seven Mile Beach. Nothing happened. So then I started thinking, well, why hasn't it? There must be a reason why. You know, there's, there's a reason why. You know, it can't, it's not allowed. It's zoned where you can't do it. There's, you know, it's, you know, there's no way you'll ever be allowed to do it. And it was zoned recreation. It was zoned for a golf course. It was zoned for any type of recreation, which is nuts, right? It's like you, you don't have to rezone it. You don't have to, you know, do all those sorts of things to get a golf course passed. You just have to go through a regular process with council um, that, that, that any development would have to go through. So that's when I started thinking, okay, um, someone needs to do this. And then I decided, well, no one's doing it, so I'll try and do it. And that's <laughs> really the you. Of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, I mean, like we all talk about the site and it's amazing, but it's really hard to describe how underutilized this, you know, asset is for Hobart. Like, it's crazy. You're 30 minutes from the city right near the airport and you've got this long beach and it just has – there's no development on it at all. And, and some people argue well, that's a good thing, but it's it's an environmental disaster zone. The pine tree, the radiator pines have taken over it. There's fallen trees. There's there's dead trees. It's, you know, it, it's not a um, – it, it needs some management, you know, just to return it to what it should be. And then the golf course will then, you know, and recreational trials will then – you know, have the opportunity for people to actually enjoy it down there as well and have other sort of recreational activities. And the fact that, you know, I'd always have this sort of argument with people of just like, well, just build it somewhere else. Why have you got to build it there? We like going for a walk along the beach or whatever. Not, you know, not that we're going to have any impact on anyone that goes for a walk along the beach. And it's, when you don't play golf, it's hard to describe what the difference, like there's so many golf courses, it's hard Mm -hmm. to describe. Mm -hmm. There are some truly great golf courses there are some truly transcendent places to go and this feels like or felt like to me that this had the opportunity to be one of those and just building it up the road on some clay-based hill is just missing the point so there are some areas that are just meant for golf and this is one of them only a golfer would understand that, wouldn't they? In the same way that probably yeah. only an art lover would understand somebody who says, well, they're all just paintings, you know, put them up. It's, exactly. it's a similar yeah. sort of thing, isn't it? They're just golf courses, just go and build it somewhere else. It, it just doesn't work yeah. that way, does it? It's, uh, and then, I think there's a really – I think golf in Australia is kind of halfway between the UK and America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, golf in America is very private, very exclusive, put up gates, put up walls, keep people out. This is 300 members, you know – even when you come in as a guest, they look at you as like, what are you doing here? You know, Exclusion not, is what they uh, sell, isn't it? It's exclu- yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's part of the draw card. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, right-of-way laws and stuff in the UK made it to where 
a lot of the golf courses, even the most private golf courses, um, the public gets to enjoy them. The public and the, like these green spaces, these places between the shore and and in sort of these underdeveloped areas um, from the city to where the you know the, the shoreline is, all of a sudden become these you know beautifully intensively managed because if they're just left they don't they're not beautiful places to go to they get overrun with weeds they get overrun with you know feral animals and all that sort of stuff people need like the city doesn't have unlimited resources to be intensively land managing everything around the city right so these golf courses all over the UK present intensive land management and also a great place to take your dog for a walk and you know interact and and, and walk across the land so I feel like we need to be closer to that. And, and Australia is kind of halfway in between. So, so there's not a great understanding of the, the fact that, no, we want you to ride your horse down there. We want you to take your dog for a walk. We, we don't, we, like, we, we can provide safe thoroughfare and everyone's going to enjoy it. And if you hitch your horse up at our clubhouse and have a beer, great. I mean, there's nothing better than having everyone down there doing all that and having people. And so it, it's trying to get people to understand that that's, that's what we should be aiming for and what we shouldn't be aiming for is super exclusive. Mm. This, is my, this is my club. I'm going to have my buddies play here. Um, th- that is not – to me, I, I have absolutely zero interest in that. Yeah. does nothing for anybody, golf included, does it? Because, of course – People are bored of me banging on about it. But golf's biggest problem might be its image among non-golfers who assume that all golf is behind fences, that they're excluded, and it breeds animosity. You don't see that animosity, do you, in the UK around the Lynx courses? You go to the old course at St Andrews, apart from it being shut on Sunday and people wander around and all that, which is fantastic, but the locals don't have an animosity towards it because it's just a part of, like a park. They know they can walk across it should they want to. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and that absolutely. animosity is dangerous for golf, and golf needs to do well, something about correcting that. I, I, as I said, I think that's where Australia is halfway between mm. um, uh, America and the UK, because even the you – know, like Tassie's famous for its nine holers, right? We have mm. more golf per capita than any other um, state in Australia, but – Man, we have a lot of rubbish. Like, it's not, yeah. like they're they're not even quirky. Some of them they're just flat out bad. But um, even those clubs don't feel like you'd feel like if you went for a walk and just had, wanted to walk out and have a look at the grass or have a look at the greens, someone's going to yell at you. Yeah. What are you doing over there? You can't be out here. It's like, mate, I could pay five bucks and play here. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's exactly can right. I, can I give you five bucks and go and have a look around? Yeah. You know, and of course there's a safety issue, but I mean, I don't, I don't think that that is hard to navigate either. You know, the, like the simple like little signage or a little little map show people where they can go and, and, and open them up a little bit more. And you can still have your Royal Melbournes and, you know, your exclusive golf clubs. I don't have a – that's fine. But th- like the 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 allure of exclusivity that is around a nine-hole – country club needs to go away yeah yeah and that's something it's about something much bigger than just sort of that's about golf becoming a part of community isn't it which is the exact opposite of what we're talking about that notice that that idea of exclusion and fences there's golf being part of the community being seen as part of the community which will in fact 
ensure golf's future. And we see here in Sydney with more park golf course, which is flat out from sun up till sundown, but there's a very dedicated core of people who don't believe golf belongs in that space and they want to halve the size of it. Now, there may be arguments both for and against all of that, but the natural animosity that exists between non-golfers and golfers is not helping golf make its case in that. So we need some facilities that can show the way. And so I'm staggered yeah, to hear. Yeah, but I also think that the, the, the against crowd of someone like Moore Park, uh, are they going to... Are they going to foot the bill to intensively land manage the area that's not? All of a sudden, you know, the the greater council up there is going to have to have more area to look after in a different way. And let, let's be honest. Let's be honest. As soon as it's not a golf course and it becomes something else, how long before it's not a park? How long that's before right. it's housing developed? How long before you don't have any green space at all? We're all kidding ourselves if we don't think that golf courses – in built-up areas, aren't the last stand against urbanisation. I mean, without the golf courses through southeast Melbourne, there wouldn't be a single blade of grass east of the Yarra. Yep. I mean, let's be honest, because they've been built up against every fence, you know, every every area. And, like, in all these courses, like, it's difficult for them because the way they're structured, they it's a big carrot, right? It's like, well, if you move further out, move to the National – you know, we can buy this club, we'll buy Long Island, we'll move down there and then we'll have, we'll own both clubs and have $50 million in the bank and, you know, we won't have to worry about the stress on membership or the fact that the game's slowly shrinking and the financial pressures. Like, you can understand what happens, but, like, for all the people that are saying, even if it's an exclusive golf course, having it in your area, in your environment, what it does for the quality of the air, what it does for the wildlife, what it does for all sorts of things that if it wasn't there, you're kidding yourself if you think you're going to have an 80-acre 80, 80 park um, or, you know, whatever it is at Royal Melbourne. If that got sold off, like you're having a laugh. You might get a couple of footy ovals, yeah, you know, and, right. and a little place to walk. You might get five acres, but you're not going to have 200 it's exactly what's happened at Moore Park. One of the cases being put by the Lord Mayor here is that all the people in the, the new units across the road look over there and see all this green space that they can't access. It's like, well, how did they end up in units across the road with no green space? Yeah. <laughs> Why wasn't well, that factored in? You can access it. It's not, it's, not, it's not cut off from access. Just go and take up golf. That's exactly right, which is the other thing. You know, There's nothing exclusive about it at all. It can be played anywhere. We're getting onto a, a whole subject. So I'm intrigued by this notion of tying your horse up at the clubhouse, man. I've got a mental picture now that I can't get rid of. Are you serious about that? Are you going to have a fence post 100%. out the front where people can tie up a yep. horse? How will that I, work? I, we're, a ho- we're a horse family. Oh, I, I, of course. I've been a horse trainer. Like, yeah, I don't, like, yeah. I actually, my, we have a horse that part of the beach, funnily enough, is um, leased by the uh, TRC, the Tasmanian R- Racing Council, I think it is. Um, so a lot of the horses actually work down there. They work at the beach. So they come across, they, they run down the beach, and then they walk back up. Um, yeah, so it's the beach area, and the, there's also another trail on the five-mile side, which, again, is more on the beach, and like it's not as far in as what we're in. As I said, we're quite a long way in. But... Yeah, I think um, I think riding a horse down there around the golf course would be awesome. It's an extraordinary concept that you're putting because it's so foreign to what we expect from golf and golf developments, I guess, where they tend to be just all about 
sort of golf, so I'm sort of interested in it in that way. But it makes it potentially a quite important development for the game more broadly, doesn't it? If you can pull this off down there and have a multi-use area where golf is just one of the things that people use the space for, creates a template potentially for other if if not well, wants to even I, I retroactively, guess, I guess potentially. Um, I, I guess there is there's a lot of pressure on local governments and 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 state governments because they have a lot of crown land that they have to manage, and and there are some areas that are more strategically important that that require management that they can't manage as intensely as what they need to whether it's forestry or bushland you know with all the bushfires and stuff like that you know while because they're trying to manage you know some park or some some coast area that's overridden with you know to keep people off it and stuff like that so there's an argument for sensitive sensible um development on crown land for sure but i mean it it just it can't be it can't be a free-for-all either like it and, and and that's that's the tricky thing, right? Mm. Is is how do you know someone's going to do what they say they're going to do? Um, th- there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of probably th- developments people can point to where it's just like what well, was only supposed to be A and it's ended up being B, C, D, E, and F, and now we can't even go in there. And they said they were going to be public, and now they're private. And you know, so I, I can see why people are wary of it. But I think there's definitely a role for private and public developments to take the burden off and to utilise underutilised assets, which then can have state and local governments um, commit the time and the resources to the things that need managing. Is that a political way to put it? Did I sound like a politician there? I think. I uh, well, I was going to say, you don't sound like a touring pro, uh, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you've clearly stepped outside... That role there, but it's 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 kind of the elusive win-win is what you're painting there. Now, lots of things happen yeah. that distort that, as you know, and as you've just laid out. A becomes B, C, D, and E because all sorts of things can happen, but mm. the concept is quite simply a win-win. And so, you know, golf wins and Tassie wins with tourism and the area wins because it gets opened up. But at the moment, if 50 people a year get to see the place and you develop it and 5,000 a year get to see it, that's got to be – I would think you've got to call that a win. Um yeah, you know, it's some sort yeah of and some stuff. people won't. So some people will just like let's leave everything as is. Yeah, I don't course. care if um, I don't care if a bushfire ran through there and killed every animal, um, because it can't be managed. And you know, radiata pines are like you know fuel, fuel matchbox, cells ready they, to yeah. explode. Matchboxes. You know, I, I I don't care if the undergrowth isn't managed. Um, I don't care if it's run over by feral cats. I just don't want anything to be there because there shouldn't be anything there. Um, so, that, and, and that's what happens. Is that it's not that you have people arguing in good faith and having you know intellectually honest discussions about what should be done with this piece of crown land. It's generally people who engage in intellectual dishonesty and and argue in bad faith just because they don't want anything to go down there ever. Mm. Well, so it's binary isn't it the, the world seems to be becoming more binary you, you either have this or that the, the gray areas for discussion and it's the gray areas that make the world interesting it's the gray areas that make golf interesting this binary nature that the world seems to be moving towards is it's kind of bleak yeah, and i ways, think most it? people i don't think most people are binary it's just sort of presented that way mm. i think you know i have a lot of conversations with people and you know if, if you're willing to meet them somewhere across their side 
generally you'll find yourself agreeing on a hell of a lot and disagreeing on very little. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you can only do that through having, you know, respectful conversation and, and assuming that the person is, is not the worst version of this argument they're putting forward. They're just putting, you know, uh, you take them on good faith that, you know, that, 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 that they're being honest and they're not, you know. They believe in what they're saying stuff like that. for good reasons you may not have considered. But exactly. that you might not you might not ultimately agree with, but you've not considered them, so you'll consider them first and then decide where yeah. you go from there. It strikes me, Matt, we'll finish up in just a moment, but it strikes me a little bit like Meg McLaren. I've put this to her before too. You might be a bit too bright to be a golfer. She might be a bit too bright to be a golfer. Is it a, is it a good thing to have a mind that's constantly inquisitive the way yours is about all sorts of stuff beyond just golf? Is that a blessing or a curse I, for a golfer? No, I don't think I don't, I don't think that's that's sort of like a fair representation of a lot of the guys. I think there's just I think it's whatever interests you at different times in your life. I mean, I'm sure if I had this conversation 20 years ago, I was pretty much one track. You know, it's golf, 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 golf. Um, and that it's fair enough when you talk to other guys that their dedication and, and, and everything they're thinking about revolves around golf. Um, but then sometimes you find yourself listening to podcasts, reading books, start questioning these, have these big questions, and then all of a sudden you're in a rabbit hole and um, and you've, the last thing you're thinking about is golf. So um, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that, you know, that uh, put it this way. I don't think it hurts when you just have a one track mind. Now you can either be smart enough to realize that and then do it or never realize it and just do it anyway, because you don't have the capacity to think beyond one thing. So let's, let's just leave it at that. (laughs) Let's, Let's indeed leave it at that, mate. It's been fabulous to talk to you. Let's hope that all of your future golf comes to be. I mean, the best may be ahead for Matt Goggin. We don't know the best part of your career. Well, let's hope so. That's right. um, you're healthy again, aren't well, you? Well, the, the, the golf – yeah, no, I'm healthy now. The golf development is really sort of exci- – it's exciting just because of what it could provide in the future down there. It'll be something that hopefully outlives me um, and be something that my kids can look at and – and everyone down there can look at and be wow, like you know, that's really cool that that's there. Kind of like Barnbeagle Dunes, um, you know, you know, Mona Museum. Like, there's so many things that have gone on in Tassie that have just really elevated um, the entire state. And you know, our goal is to be another one of those things that you know elevates the state. It could and should become Australia's golf playground down in Tassie without too much trouble. Yeah, the weather, no, the, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, it's already on the way. I mean, yeah. the I mean, I know we're trying to you're trying to. We're trying to close this out, but obviously, like Cape Wickham's a bit tricky to get to, and even though it's part of Tassie, it's kind of like it's kind of up there. And Ocean Dunes is up there, and Barn Bugle Dunes is fantastic, but it's it's still people just go to Barn Bugle Dunes who they don't go anywhere else. Well, I think with Seven Mile Beach and the 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 potential to possibly one day have a second golf course there, and you know, with Arm End coming online, the ability to have golfers moving around the state and then the benefit the on flow benefit you know because it, it like the the whole thing with tassie is like oh you can drive around it you know in a few days but the on the real the reality of tourism is tasmania is most people just either go to bar Boogle or they go to hobart that's right yeah. and a lot of the other stuff gets missed out so if there's a way that we can add to maybe people's 
spending a little bit more time or maybe visiting other places in the state because they're going to drive drive down and then they go, well, if I'm driving from Barnaboo to Hobart, I may as well go to Kettering or go down the East Coast or, you know, go to Oatlands or whatever it is and, and, and check in some of these towns and they'll get the knock-on effect and some of the benefits of, you know, the increased visitors. So it's really exciting for what could happen and hopefully will happen. Because it truly is. It's, for anyone who hasn't been to Tassie, do yourself a favour. It's an amazing place. It's stunningly beautiful. Um, we did the drive from yeah. Hobart up the coast to Bamboo once, took a couple of days to do it, and up through Freysenay and Wineglass Bay, and just genuinely hold its own in yeah, any Yeah, all the little towns. I, I think, I think um, like, the, obviously, it's, people, they'll fly into Hobart, they'll do Salamanca, they'll do Mona, and... Um, Maybe a day, something out of the, you know, get into Port Arthur or they would go down the Huon or, you know, there's a couple of great restaurants. You know, there's one in New Norfolk, which is just, which is just stunning. Um, you know, it's become a real sort of foodie um, area. But, man, like, like the West Coast, which has kind of been dying since the mining's died out, like there's some really cool little towns and amazing drives up there. And it's just if we can get to people to go and visit them, they'll always go back because it's one of those sort of places. It, it was interesting, like after 9-11, no one was coming to Tassie at all um, as far as tourism. But then after 9-11, when everyone just started having a little bit of hesitancy around traveling overseas and people started taking more holidays in Australia and it was like, oh, I'll go down to Tassie for the weekend. Well, once you go down there, you'll find yourself going back every year. Because it is, it, there's so many cool little quaint towns and things that just when you get out of Sydney or Melbourne, you just sort of, and you're at a, you're having a Devonshire tea at some little historic town that's just, and the the old lady is just telling you a cracking story or whatever it is, or you're going to one of the distilleries, you just don't get that in other parts of Australia. And, of course, you can't do Tassie in a weekend is what you discover when you go down and try to do it because it looks tiny on the map. <laughs> it's actually a little bit yeah, bigger. Than you that, it's get, yeah, it's a bit bigger than that. Are we supposed to do like an ad read from Tourism Tasmania now? Is that what we're going to do? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, this it's, is brought to you by Tourism Tasmania. It could be a funding opportunity for one of us, <laughs> either you or for me. You know, the, the, the podcast is open oh, for sponsorship, so yes. we'll see where we can. Come on. <laughs> Matt, it's been fantastic. Oh, Can't week, wait for you to we'll, come we'll back. We'll do a weekly Australia. segment the last five minutes every week. Yeah, Talk well, about some some horrific nine hole you should go and play in Tassie. Do you know what? That's not such a bad idea. We'll talk after we turn off the tape. I hope to see you back in Australia uh, sooner than later, my friend, but it's been fabulous to catch yeah. up today. All the best with it as it goes forward, and I can't wait to come down and have a look at Seven Mile Beach and have you walk us around. That'll be beautiful. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks, Rod. That's a wrap for episode 36 and our chat with Matt Goggin, which already feels like it might have raised more questions than it answered. One of the reasons I always enjoy talking with Matt so much is because he so often surprises me with his responses. And I hope that you, like me, left this interview feeling there was an awful lot to think about. Now, I hope you've made the smart decision to subscribe to the show because you really don't want to miss our next episode when John Huggan sits down to talk to one of the dominant forces of 1990s golf, Nick Price. And Sebi and I just went into our own little zones and we just knew, you know, it was punch, counterpunch, punch, counterpunch. And trust me, you do want to hear the rest of that story. That's Nick Price with John Huggan next time on The Thing About Golf. 